Today, we continue with a series of messages we started at the beginning of this year, a study of the book of Acts that we've been doing all year long, hopefully in our own personal worship, but then gathering together on Sundays and in our community groups as we unpack these principles. And we're going to continue that today as we develop the idea that life for the believer in Jesus, life for me and you, if you believe in Christ, uh, it's not your mission, it's His. Every moment of it, every category of it, Okay, life is mission. And today, as we pick up our study in Acts chapter 24, we pick it up and we find the Apostle Paul, who we've been watching and walking together with now for quite a while. This time we find him in a prison, a first century prison in the port city of Caesarea. And here's why he's in that prison. And this really matters. It's because, and here's what matters, just like Jesus You've got to see that. See, one of the things you realize is you begin to look at Luke's account of the sufferings of Paul, and that's what we've been doing in the book of Acts, and you can compare it with Luke's account of the sufferings of Jesus in the other book that he wrote, the book of Luke, not very creatively named, but what you discover is that Luke has patterned the sufferings of Paul after his account of the sufferings of Jesus. Now, why in the world did he do that? I think at least in part, because Paul saw, because he saw, and because he wants you to see, how the sufferings of Jesus, and therefore not just of Jesus, but of Paul and of me and of you, end. So I'll ask you, how did the sufferings of Jesus end? Because here's what you want to say. You want to jump in and go, okay, I'm pretty sure I've got an image of this. They ended in death on a cross, something like this. And I understand the impulse to put that forth as the answer, but I've got to say that is way underselling it. That's stopping way too early, in my opinion. The story of Jesus does not end in the grave. The story of Paul that we're studying, okay, did not end in the grave. My story will not end in a grave. If you belong to Jesus, your story will not end in a grave. And if we're going to get this message today, this message on waiting, man, we got to own up on that first. We need to come around this idea on waiting by first coming around the idea that this life that you and I are presently enjoying and even in the same room together at this particular moment does not end in a grave. It ends in eternal glory. That is the pattern for Jesus. That is the pattern for Paul. That is the pattern for me. And that is the pattern for you if Christ is yours and if you are his. We're talking about waiting today, and I'm going to tell you up front, it's a difficult topic. How many of you like to wait? Just raise your hand if you're all in on waiting. Like you wake up in the morning and go, I hope there's traffic. Good grief. 93 people in the donut store before me. I couldn't be happier because you don't have anywhere to be, do you? What's our problem? Problem is we are all a bunch of time-bound creatures. What's our fear? Our fear is that time is going to run out. And not just on getting to work. In our suffering, in our waiting, what do we fear? That time's going to run out. That the deliverance that we're looking for, longing for, praying for, is not going to come in time. But wait a minute. 
Does your story end in a grave? Like, is that the only life there is? And is God bound by things like that? You know, the God of life and death. Keep all that in play this morning. As we pick up our study in Acts chapter 24, we find Paul and he's in prison in a port city of Caesarea. And here's why, because just like Jesus, he was driven to the city of Jerusalem. And just like Jesus, he went to the city of Jerusalem, even though just like Jesus, he knew what waited for him in the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't a party. It wasn't a welcoming committee. It was imprisonment. It was affliction. It was suffering. And oh, how he suffered. Just like Jesus, he is seized. Just like Jesus, he is dragged. Just like Jesus, he's beaten almost to death. He's brought into the custody of the Romans. And just like Jesus in the custody of the Romans, he faces his accusers and they lie about him and they call out for his life. Sound familiar? Just like Jesus, he appears before the high priest and the elders, the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews in that city. And just like Jesus, he is struck in the mouth at the insistence of the high priest. My goodness, the pattern is clear. It's unambiguous. Just like Jesus, the Jewish religious establishment conspired to take the life of Paul. And, well, the Jewish or the the, the Roman commander there in Jerusalem who gets wind of this conspiracy then sneaks Paul out of town and takes him down to Caesarea, you're like, aha, there's a break in the pattern. Well, yes and no, because he takes him down to Caesarea so that he could appear before a man named Felix. Felix occupied the exact same position that Pontius Pilate had occupied in the days of Christ. And just like Jesus appeared with his accusers before Pilate, Paul appears with his accusers before Felix. The high priest comes... A delegation of elders come. They bring a high-priced lawyer, so he comes. You know what they don't bring? They don't bring a shred of evidence. They don't bring one witness to substantiate their claims. They don't because they don't have one and because they don't need one. See, just like Pilate, in an effort to appease the Jews, took Jesus, put him to death, and threw his body in a pit, Felix... Though he, like Pilate, knows Paul is innocent, you see. Takes Paul. Now, he doesn't kill him. But to appease the Jews, he throws his body in a pit. And he leaves him there. And I want to ask you, because this is an issue when it comes to waiting. What part of that do you think made sense to Paul? Like, help me out with that. Because I can't think of anything that would have made sense of that. Here is the most gifted, at least arguably, the most capable, the most zealous, the most effective even perhaps. Certainly he's in the top three of all of God's servants in the entire world in his day. Planted church after church after church after church after church after taken completely out of the game sitting in a pit of a prison. Sitting there. And unjustly for the political expediency of some Roman politician. Now, you know, the politician brings him out every now and then. They have a little religious conversation and he sends him back and brings him out again. And Paul probably thinks, well, maybe he's calling me in to let me out because it's pretty... No. Sends him back again, brings him out again, sends him back again, sitting around hoping not only to appease the Jews, but that Paul, who has shown some great fundraising ability, by the way, which he must have caught wind of, will find a bunch of Christians to pay him off. So now he wants to be bribed even. And Paul sits there, 
scratching his head. For how long? Luke tells us. Acts chapter 24, verse 27. He says that when two days had elapsed, now that's not what it says, but I want you to imagine two days in that prison because I think it would feel pretty long to us. We're not talking about the Broward County lockup as terrifying, frankly, as that would be for me. We're talking about a first century prison, and I don't mean to be overly indelicate, but where did he go to the bathroom? Because I'm thinking it was pick a corner. Seriously. Where did he take a bath? Did he take a bath? Where did he even wash his hands? Where did he sleep? Did they have a nice little cot with some springy little cushion and he got to lay on that and he got a pillow and a nice warm blankie and there was air conditioning and there was heating in the winter and there was... Is that the way it worked? What did he eat amongst all the flies? Who came in to clean it up? You think they had like a maid service? Luke says that when two years of this injustice, of this confinement, of this disgusting, torturous existence that made no sense to this man in the moment. Frustrating, to say the least. And two years of this waiting had elapsed, during which Paul rotted away in this prison. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and no doubt Paul got his hopes up for a moment and thought, well, maybe he'll let me go. I mean, he knows he's not going to get the bribe now, and there's no one to appease, at least for him at this point. But not even then is he let go. Luke says, desiring to do the Jews a final favor, instead of letting Paul go on his way out of office, Felix left Paul in prison, which means what? Well, for those of us who have been around unpacking this idea that life is mission, it means that waiting is mission. It's something that you and I need to do differently from the rest of the world so that when the rest of the world sees that we do it differently and asks us about it, we can then introduce them to the one who is himself the difference. And it isn't me and it isn't you. It's Christ. Life is mission and waiting is mission. And I want you to consider how the mission works. God takes waiting and he uses it to advance his mission in us. And how does he use it to advance his mission in us? By causing us through waiting in a way that almost nothing else will do to do exactly what it is that we've been talking about needing to be able to do if ever we are really going to live our lives as mission. And what is that? It is to get up every single morning and to die to ourselves and to life, we'll put it in quotes, as we would define it, as we would label it, and as we would construct it for ourselves, a life that would not involve any waiting at all. It's dying to that. And it's saying, Lord, I'm going to let that go. And it's receiving from his hand, the hand of your Savior and King. Well, life, as he defines it, as he labels it, as he constructs it, and as he leads you through. A life, by the way, that if you haven't noticed, Involves waiting. But if you've forgotten, does not end in the grave. Guys, waiting is mission. And when it comes to waiting, here it is, this is the bottom line. When it comes to waiting, what we need to do 
is to submit our lives to the greater wisdom and to that which is true life, that which comes from the hand of Jesus. When it comes to waiting, submission is the key. In fact, it's the whole ball game. And I want you to listen, for example, to what Isaiah says. He comes to us in Isaiah chapter 40, a chapter that I can assure you Paul's reciting as he's sitting there day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Now, hang on a second. Who is he talking to here? Well, he's speaking prophetically immediately. His immediate audience is a group of people who have lost their lands, whose houses have been burned, whose city, together with the temple of their God, has been utterly destroyed, whose sons and daughters, husbands and fathers and brothers have been slaughtered en masse, whose daughters have been taken by the soldiers of an invading army. Pause. who have been herded together like a big cattle drive, if you will, and then driven like a herd of cattle hundreds of miles that they've walked with the old and with the young, with the sick and with the weak, dying along the way either because they have fallen behind the pack too far and they kill them or they just die of sheer exhaustion and who are now living as foreign slaves in captivity where they stayed Not for days, weeks, months, years, or even decades, but a couple of generations. I point that out to you because here's what we tend to do. We tend to silo away in our waiting and in all of the difficulty of it, which I am not diminishing. Honestly, I'm validating. But we tend to look at a message like this. Okay, okay, waiting is mission, and the key to waiting is submission to Jesus. Got it but I'm not so sure that if you knew my circumstances, you wouldn't accept me from this. I mean, that might be true for most of the waiters, you know, here today, but it's it's not possibly true for me. It's like God grabs up some of the most severe sufferers in history and says, okay, well, I applied it to them, so I'm thinking probably it works for the rest of us. Isaiah speaking to every believer in Jesus who waits. Listen to what he says. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, he says, O Israel? And then you know what he does? He's sneaky. He puts the words that we in fact say and speak right into our mouths and says them for us. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Here we go. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Translation, God, are you really there? God, do you really see me? God, do you really care? God, do you love me? God, will I ever be delivered? Will I ever be vindicated? How can you possibly be good and let this happen to me? And here's the deal. We say this all the time, and here's the reason that we say it all the time. And if we don't say it out loud, we think it. Okay, why? Because as God has designed our lives, our lives are all of them full of waiting, whether you're waiting at a traffic light or whether you're waiting for a doctor's report, or in many of your cases, just a good doctor's report. You've gotten plenty of reports. You just would like a good one. You know, Lord, just throw me a bone on this one, would you? I'd like to... Please. It's not a little thing. Whether you're waiting for Christmas and you're like nine, you know, and it's torturous when you're nine... You got your little Christmas calendar out the last month and you're, you've taken all the little guys out and you're sticking them on the felt thing. I don't, maybe you don't do this, but we do this, you know, and it's like, oh, I can't wait for Christmas. Freaking out. 
Or maybe you're 39 and you're waiting in infertility to find out whether you're going to have any kids to put little things on the deal with. That's actually torturous, by the way. This is true whether you're waiting to finally arrive at your vacation destination because you, like me, drive 14 hours, I guess because you're nuts with your family (laughs) and your kids ask every about three minutes, are we there yet? Are we there? Are we out of of Florida yet? Are we past Orlando? Are we up to Atlanta? Are we up to Atlanta? I'm like, you know, when are we going to get there? I'm like, you know what? We're not if I drive off this cliff. (laughs) And it's close. So... Say your prayers. It's true whether you're waiting for that or whether you're waiting for a prodigal son or daughter to finally come home. Home to Jesus and maybe home to you. It's true whether you're waiting for your wedding day or you're just like hoping to get a date, man. It's like, you know, whatever. I'd be satisfied with that. Been waiting. You're waiting to see if God will save your very, very painful marriage, whether you're waiting for acceptance to some college and you're 19 or you're waiting for acceptance from your mom and dad and you're 59. Isaiah gathers up every Christian who waits and who in their waiting is tempted not just to ask why. That's Jesus asks why, but tempted to doubt God's character, His love, His wisdom, That's different. And he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? God, do you you really love me? Are you there? Do you care? Do you see what's happening? You paying attention? Are you really faithful? Will I ever be vindicated? Are you ever going to deliver me? Are you you really good? And how how can that be if you're good at... Isaiah is coming to us and he's going, how can you say that? And it's like he's incredulous. He can't believe it. Meanwhile, we can't believe that he can't believe it. It's like, how can we not? How can you be surprised by this? How can you be incredulous? And now he tells us, he says, have you not known? And so he can't believe it because of something that he assumes we know. To which he adds, have you not heard? And so he can't believe it because of something that, well, you're God's people. You, surely you've heard. Where? God's Word. In God's infallible Word. Listen to what the psalmist says about waiting. Waiting in God's Word. Psalm 130, verse 5, he says, I wait For the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word, I hope. I think we have a lot of waiters here today. Just a guess, but I'm pretty sure. What are you doing with God's Word? In His Word, I hope. Let me tell you what sometimes you want to do. You want to say, you know what? I'm really ticked at God, so I'm not going to go to His Word. Hey, you know what? I'm kind of resentful of God. I'm going to punish God by ignoring Him. I'm going to run from that in which I find, not just out about God, I don't just find out things, but I find God by His Spirit, through His Word, He is found, and in Him is hope. 
It's fascinating. The word weight in the Hebrew means to twist. You feel the tension in that? The noun version of that word is a rope. There's tension. But what do you do with a rope? Well, you walk up to a cliff because you hear a voice shouting up from underneath, hey, you know, and they're hanging on to like this little branch that's starting to crack. You feel like that? And you take the rope and you lower it down. And with it, you pull them up. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in His Word, I find my rope. I hope. You know, it's funny, every once in a while I'll take an email because I'm preaching on I don't know what, and I'll send it out to a small group of people and I'll just say, you know, give me your thoughts on this. I'm talking about waiting this week. Tell me about your experiences. Tell me about what you're thinking. Waiting on the Lord means... And I sent it out this week, and I did that for this message, and I've never gotten a response like this. You know, it was interesting as I started reading through all these emails, I'd get to like the fourth one, and everybody's reading the ones before them. And everyone now beginning to comment is saying, you know what, this has been good for my soul. This is amazing. This is incredible. It was magnificently God-honoring, and it was so wonderfully beautiful to read what each one of these dear saints had to say, each one of them who've experienced or are experiencing significant seasons of waiting, painful waiting. And I want to read to you just a small excerpt from one of them, from one of our dear sisters who, together with her husband and their family, is facing the severest of waitings. She says this, and now listen for faith, for trust, for strength, and how that's tied to God's Word. She says, waiting for God to act or for His will to be revealed and being utterly helpless in the meantime is capital H, capital A, capital R, capital D. It's hard. And it's even harder when it keeps going on and on relentlessly and things appear to be getting worse and worse. She says, the question we keep facing all along the way is, will you trust me? Will you trust me with this? Okay, well then, how about this? And will you honor me by living in such a way that you point to my trustworthiness even in the face of pain and suffering and loss? What is that? Waiting as mission. She goes on to say, trusting and waiting seems to be inseparable. Now listen, and what helps me repeatedly to redirect my thoughts from fear or frustration or self-pity or worry to waiting and trusting is reading and repeating and focusing on what I know to be true on the Scriptures that speak to the reality of who God is and to the reality of how He cares for His own. That's what turns worry into worship and thereby renews strength. The downward spile of deep weariness and discouragement that results from losing focus on God and His truth is reversed. My heart and mind are lifted up, and I can keep on, carried by His strength and power. I can answer, yes, Lord, I will trust you. And then she says this, and I love it. So real, she says, an observer might mistakenly think this person is so strong, this person has great faith. She says, no, definitely not. 
This person is shaken to the core, exhausted and afraid. But this person belongs to the one true God who is mighty in strength and will not let her go. She closes with this. She says, and on his wings, she can even fly. Which is exactly where Isaiah is going, guys. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? And now he tells us what we both need to know and hear. If we're going to give up life that we've labeled and frankly, you know, that we'd rather have. (laughs) Or at least we think we'd want it rather than what he's giving. If we're going to submit to Christ, which is the key. Okay, here's what you need to know. He says that the Lord. Now, wait, wait a minute. We live on this side of the New Testament. Who's the Lord? Jesus. On the basis of the fuller revelation of God, we come to a passage like this and we go, well, he's talking about my Savior. He's talking about my Christ. He's talking about the one who came from heaven to earth, entered into this world, took upon himself my sin, and gave away his entire life, literally, to purchase me, thus settling the, God, do you love me question, do you care? And even do you see me? It's hard to say that and look at the cross, but in our waiting, in our anger, in our bitterness, in our brokenness, in our struggle over seeing the life that we'd rather have in our wisdom, put that in quotes, we need to be reminded to look back at it, not to take our eyes off of it, Isaiah says, let me tell you what you need to know. It is that the Lord, your Jesus, is the everlasting God. Now, what does that speak to? Time. Speaks to the issue of time. He's everlasting. I'm like barely lasting. How about you? I mean, really, like in the end, almost didn't last at all. Seriously. We are, all of us, time-bound, earth-bound creatures. We, all of us, not only hear the ticking of the clock, no, no, no. We feel the weight of the ticking of the clock. And we can sense that it's ticking down, particularly when we want to be delivered. And here's the problem. We forget that this life is not the only life there is, that our stories and lives don't end in the grave. My goodness, if anything, they just begin. And we forget that our Jesus is the everlasting God who never says things like, you know, if I had only showed up a little bit early. Oh, man, if I had set my alarm this morning and got up at 8, I could have intervened and... He doesn't sleep or slumber, does he? He's never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. He's different from us. Praise the Lord. That is a good thing. And things like life in this life or death in this life cannot and will not stand in the way of that Jesus or in the way of his ability to fulfill each and every one of his promises, our greatest delights and desires here and forever in ways that we cannot even ask or imagine. Isaiah says, let me talk to you, O suffering waiter. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? And I think he says it very compassionately. (laughs) 
that the Lord your Jesus is the everlasting God. But, but that's not all. For he is also the creator of the ends of the earth. Well, wait a minute, that means that there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can hold him back, that can resist his will, that can thwart his purposes, that can stay his kind intentions, that can prevent him from taking this, even this mess, whatever it happens to be that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and using it to further his mission in and through you. Nothing. And incidentally, he also, Isaiah reminds us, does not faint or grow weary. And I read that this week and thought, no, but I sure did. Man. I do. I do when I define and label life for myself and then out in my own strength, because, you know, I'm afraid that God might not do it the way that I'd like. Just to be honest, I try to make it happen. Or in my waiting, which I'm wanting to end, thank you, I just give up on God and say, the heck with that. If this is the way you're going to run my life, we're good. Thanks. You stay there. I'll stay here. And I'm going to try to figure my way out of this deal. And in my own strength, I try to be my own savior, my own hope, a rope unto myself. Tethered to what? To who? He, unlike me, does not faint or grow weary. And then I love this. His understanding is unsearchable. Unsearchable by who? By me. And I love the fact that he at least lets us know that. I really do. You know, one of the things that God does in his word is he comes to us and says, hey, um, you're not like me. So you cannot, frankly, fully understand me. Fifteen chapters after this, he will say, let me tell you something about my ways. They're not your ways. Let me tell you something about my thoughts. They're not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your way. My thoughts than your thoughts. Here he comes to us and says, let me tell you something about my understanding. Okay, you can't comprehend it. It is unsearchable by you, which frankly, logically, I get. God's mind is infinite. Mine's very small in comparison and absolutely finite. God knows absolutely everything. The more I learn, the more I realize how much I still don't know. Comparatively speaking, I know nothing. God's perspective is absolutely eternal. He sees everything from the end to the beginning. In fact, He's the God who declares the end from the beginning, and He tells us that too, incidentally. What do I know? How far into the future can I really look? How far into the future can you look? God sees how absolutely everything is tied to absolutely everything and how absolutely everything is therefore going to affect absolutely everything for all of eternity. And I'm part of that absolutely everything, but my goodness, how in the world can I expect to comprehend all of that? God comes to us and says, look, You don't need to know it all. As a matter of fact, you can't know it all. It's impossible. You need to know me. You need to trust me. Let me tell you about my character. You can comprehend that. Let me explain to you my love. You know what? Wait a minute. Hold the phone. Just look at the cross. You can get that. 
But there's going to be seasons of time in your life that you will not understand. And instead of just leaving you to kind of wallow around and figure that out, I'm telling you in advance. So you say, well, all right, well, then what do I do? You dive deeply into his word. You cling fiercely to his rope. You surround yourself with Christian community who will preach his faithfulness to you in your moments of doubt. And you wait. And in waiting, that way, you'll find strength. For he says in verse 29 that God gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, the very strongest of humanity, he says, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, who hang on, who get up every day and say, okay, God, I'm going to die to me. That's hard. I'm going to live for you. All right, those people shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Paul spent a couple years in prison, actually more than a couple of years. And then, of course, as we'll see, he spends more time in a different prison as we move through his story. And I'm sure he wondered why, but he wrote down a lot of lessons that, that he learned, lessons that we've taken up. How many people have been blessed by those lessons through his letters? Lessons he wouldn't have learned apart from his suffering. I give you one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Life is mission. Waiting is mission. And when it comes to waiting, submission to Jesus, to his greater love, his greater wisdom, his greater plan, his greater life is the key. It's the whole ballgame. I want to close in prayer, but I want to ask you guys to do something. We are not by nature a come forward church. I'm not critical of that. I actually kind of like it, to be honest. My wife keeps saying, you need to do an altar call, man. And I said, well, it'll be me and you up there, honey. So not going to lie, it would be different for our culture. We're not a stand up and give you our testimony or your testimony on the spot kind of church. And so I'm not going to embarrass you or anything like that. But if you've been listening to this waiting message and thinking to yourself, man, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for a date. I'm waiting for, you know, the light. I'm waiting for kids. I'm waiting for something. As an encouragement to everybody else here who waits, would you raise your hand? Pretty good percentage. Now let's ask the Lord for His strength. Father, we do thank You that this life is not all that there is. My goodness, if it was, how disappointing it would be. Lord, our story does not end in a grave just like that of our Savior. Our life does not end there. Indeed, it only begins. Give us a vision of eternity that sustains us 
through the seasons of waiting that you ordain for us here. Oh God, may we wake up every day and look for you in your word, hunger after you, prayerfully studying, clinging to the rope of hope that we find therein and be easily found by us, for we are weary of our our own strength. Lord, make us to be strong. Let us know what it is to run, to walk, and maybe even to soar a little bit now and then. Supernaturally, on the wings of the one who is Jesus. God, buttress us in our weakness. Rebuke us in our foolishness. Strengthen us with your perspective and wisdom. Overwhelm us with your character and love. Burn the image of your cross upon our hearts in an unforgettable way. And carry us through our seasons of waiting in such a way that you accomplish your work in us and you accomplish your work through us. May we know, even as Paul did, that we can do all things through Jesus who strengthens us as well. Do this for your glory and the good of this, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.